Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 269, being recorded on Thursday, July 8th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, I hope you had a nice, restful July 4th. I had a great July 4th. Uh, My poor dog that doesn't like fireworks uh, cannot say the same, but... Oh, have you tried the Thunder shirt? Uh, we've tried all of those um, homeopathic remedies, and we're we're now on Doggy Zionex. And the last time we talked to our vet, like he actually su- inadvertently suggested that both the dog and my wife should be on Zan. <laughs> <laughs> In unrelated news, he's no longer your vet. Exactly. Uh, awesome. Well, I'm glad you did. Um, he's well, now a wanted- primary care physician. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, we had some breaking news and um, pretty exciting, and I'm going to kick it over to you because it is in your category of grocery. Yeah, uh, Scott says that like he doesn't use groceries, but um, the some news from earlier today that Instacart announced that they had poached a senior executive at uh, Facebook, uh, and I'm I'm already telling the story wrong, uh, but they uh, they've appointed, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher her name. Uh, Fiji Sumo, uh, who's a former Facebook executive that is now the CEO of Instacart. Um, and the reason this is, uh, potentially big news, Instacart has, you know, been one of the primary beneficiaries of the pandemic. Uh, they're, they're going gangbusters at the moment. There's a lot of speculation that they're about to announce an IPO. Um, and the the founder of Instacart is now stepping into an executive chairman role out of the CEO role. And uh, Fiji has actually been at Instacart, I think, for like half a year from Facebook. But uh, or I guess she was on the board of directors. Um, and so now she's she's coming on as a full time employee. Yeah, it was interesting. I was uh, watching CNBC as I want to do. And they did a breaking news alert and then went to a live shot of uh of her with the uh, Apurva, um, who is the founder and now exec chairman of Instacart, um, and you know they were they were pretty directly asking the IPO question, and they had to be kind of coy about it because you don't want to you, know, you can't control the timing of that. Um, there was another article out from the information that revealed that this seems to be a deeper strategy on the Instacart side because they have taken over 60 folks from the Facebook um, side of things before this, this kind of high profile one. And what's interesting about that is the article went on and, and kind of dug into it. And a lot of them come from kind of the core ad part of Facebook. Um, so, you know, what, what I'm reading between the tea leaves there is you and I have not only talked about this new ad network on Instacart, but we had one of the leaders there who's an ex Amazonian uh, on the show. And, um, you know, I've heard a lot of buzz around this, this ad network getting a lot of play. And you can imagine that that would be a really nice thing to start having grow at, at triple digits, uh, 
post COVID as a way to continue to monetize things. So, so my, my theory is that this is a concerted effort to really beef up the ad network part of Instacart um, and add a second leg of monetization. The first being consumers paying either extra or a delivery fee for groceries. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see if that, you know, and then, then maybe that rippled all the way to the top where they said, Hey, wouldn't it be great to have someone with a really good ad network chops uh, in here and thus the addition of Fiji. Yeah, no, I think your speculation is probably spot on. Um, you know, groceries is a tough business to make money. Like it, in a way, Instacart isn't really a grocer. They're a, 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 a multi-sided marketplace. And so it's a little easier to make money, but still the best way to make money is with that ad network. And I, I feel like more than half my life right now is retail media networks. Um, so they, they are super trendy and the dirty secret is most of them are not very high volume yet, right? Like the retailers are investing all this money in collecting ad dollars, but they don't actually have, um, enough eyeballs to have real scale. And Instacart is one of the exceptions to that. So, so they are a viable place to put your, your digital ad dollars, especially as they, they get more complicated in the privacy wars. Um, so it makes sense that they want. Uh, executives that are good at that. And I would also argue uh, the Instacart advertising products could stand for some some evolution and some maturization. And so, you know, maybe that will be one of her focuses there is to to, uh, make those products more mature and uh, friendly to advertisers. And uh, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without some... Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Well, the news that popped out at me this week, and this is kind of a recurring theme that we promised listeners we'd keep track of. And and, uh, this recurring theme uh, I like to call Amazon versus Shopify. So, you know, we, we started out this year with a lot of kind of back and forth between the two companies on social media. Uh, there was some talk of Jeff Bezos re-engaging um, to help the company come up with a Shopify strategy. And so we've been watching this one really closely. So I, I thought this news was pretty interesting. Um, and I'm curious what you thought about it as well. So Big Commerce announced that they are uh, partnering with Amazon for MCF, which stands for Multi-Channel Fulfillment. Um, and you know, I wanted to read this quote. So this quote comes from the head of Omni-Channel at Big Commerce, uh, Sharon Gee, G-E-E. Um, and then the quote is, convenience and fast shipping expectations have become the holy grail of the online shopper, with demand forecasting becoming harder to control. Uh, G said in a press release, Amazon MCF will help our merchants to better plan, purchase, and fulfill in a much more efficient way. So I thought this was pretty interesting because, first of all, Amazon multi-channel fulfillment has had kind of a rocky, rocky road. Uh, not the ice cream, but uh, the you know. So Amazon introduced FBA, and then they kind of introduced this ability to ship to other channels. And then they got really rigid with it. Like then people said, well, that's good, but we want you to ship in a different box and your fees are too high for off Amazon shipments and this, that, and the other. Um, And, you know, what if we want to use um, a carrier that you don't really lean into right now, like a FedEx or someone like that. Um, And, you know, uh, then Amazon, you know, I don't know 
what the official stance is, but it became very hard to use that service in volume because the fulfillment system got full and Amazon kind of prioritized FBA over MCF. So, so MCF's had this kind of like up and down Rocky thing. So I thought this was interesting because it does seem like they're getting more serious about it. And then it also, you know, my theory is if you were going to sit down on a whiteboard and come up with 10 to 20 things that can start to box Shopify in, this is one of them. And then if you if you think back to the clubhouse we hosted uh, that had Fazil on there, he he actually kind of said, if I was Amazon, I would throw logistics at them because they'll never figure it out. And then I would use that as a wedge to, if I could get all of Shopify's customers using my logistics, then I could wedge out Shopify. Um, so I, I think that could be part of an, you know, I don't think this is going to be the the silver bullet by any means, but I think it is one of the silver shotgun um uh, pellets that that Amazon's going to start firing at Shopify. So I, I found that pretty interesting. What was your take? Yeah, I generally agree. I'm not confident that it's. Uh, I'm I'm sure uh, competitive factors against Shopify is is one aspect. But to be honest, it's just good business for Amazon. Um, to it, it's another service where they get to make a higher percentage of the to- the the worldwide GMV and all the markets that they're in, um, you know, because Amazon's the, already the biggest digital platform in most of the markets they play in that they're shipping the majority of packages for most of these, these sellers anyway. And so it's just a way to grab the rest of their volume. Almost every, you know, the majority of these sellers sell on other platforms besides Amazon. The majority of them now have recognized they need to have their own website and so it's kind of foolish of Amazon to like force them to open their own warehouses for those alternative channels or hire another 3PL. So I just think uh, in, in the same way it made sense for Amazon to rent AWS capacity to to others and um you know provide some of these other services, it's a way to monetize their delivery network and their fulfillment network. So I think it's super smart. Um I do think Shopify had some aspirations in the 3PL side of things, and I assume uh, Amazon will, you know, uh, being quite a bit ahead of Shopify, uh, you know, them making this ubiquitously available will cause some problems for Shopify. The one thing that still gives me pause and would give me pause if I were a merchant um, is that Amazon, as you alluded to, already has a checkered uh, track record for supporting this service, right? So, um even if you're just an FBA seller and you put your inventory in FBA, Amazon is notorious for constraining how much of your inventory they'll accept based on their demand capacity, right? So there was a lot of buzz um, leading up to Prime Day that a bunch of vendors just couldn't get inventory into FBA because Amazon had dramatically curtailed the amount of inventory that they would keep. Um, they're and there's all this speculation that Amazon preferences new SKUs versus old SKUs. And so a bunch of vendors found themselves having to go to other 3PLs to sell on Amazon because Amazon just wouldn't accept all of their goods. And so if you're going to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to put all my eggs in Amazon's basket and have them ship all of my product. I need to be certain that when they get busy and when they have holiday peaks, they're not going to preference their own their own stuff and what what's going to sell best on their platform against my needs and and at the moment Amazon doesn't have great credibility there so i i think they have some reputation repair they need to do um but assuming they do that like this makes a lot of sense and as as you well know 
uh, fragmentation of inventory is super expensive. So, you know, having, having some of your inventory in radio or, or, um, you know, some of these other three PLs and some of your inventory in Amazon totally sucks because you sell out of one place while you have slow turning inventory in the other place. And that cost yeah, it kind of invites Murphy's law to come bite you in the butt because the second you send a thousand widgets somewhere, then you'll need a thousand widgets the other place. <laughs> exactly. It always happens that way. It's super frustrating. Yeah. So I think this is a super appealing service, comma, Amazon has a slight credibility problem that they'll have to overcome. And historically, they, they're they pretty good at overcoming those. Yeah. One last one is um, I know eBay and Walmart all, you know, they, they got super frustrated that someone would come to eBay to buy something and it would show up in an Amazon box. So um, I know that there's been a lot of talk of them either putting up rules or thinking about it or on again, off again with rules around that. So I think Amazon would have to look at it and also think about the Amazon box and, and, you know, not ship this stuff out in kind of the normal smiley prime box that, that everything else comes out in. Yeah, no, I think that is a a TBD. And again, it's one thing if, if um, I'm, I'm indigenous on Amazon and Amazon's, you know, doesn't is super careful about what they let you even put in the box because they're again, trying to disintermediate you from the customer um, but if it's my customer, if I sold to you on my website and then I'm going to ship you a box and I'm just paying Amazon to ship that box for me, like I of course want and expect to be able to put my promotional materials in that box and that, you know, figuring out all of that kind of thing is, is uh, part of the MCF. We haven't, we haven't seen Amazon solve yet. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as a side note, this whole category is just ballooning. There was a interesting article in, um, uh, uh, CNBC last week about how uh, demand for warehouse space is at unprecedented levels, and and new cities like Columbus and Savannah are emerging as the new shipping hubs because the the traditional ones like Memphis and Kentucky and stuff just don't have have uh, any more space to rent. And then I saw um, some of the so there's like a next generation of three PL that's kind of like FBAification slash we work a vacation of, of 3PL um, like ship hero. We've had some of these folks on the show talk about shipping carriers. Um, a lot of them are raising hundreds of millions of dollars right now. So, so the, the VC dollars are flooding into the space too. So it's going to be really interesting to watch the overall fulfillment wars um, continue. Oh yeah. And I, something we've talked about a few times that are like the virtual 3PLs, right. And just, you know, yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah. And in that vein, um, I put up a little LinkedIn post. I kind of tied this to fundraising at Spiffy, but the 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 overall thing I was trying to get across is um, one of the friends of the show, Brian Fitzgerald. He's one of the internet analysts at Wells Fargo. Uh, they did a bricks and clicks day, and uh, this was last week. And in there, they had Rob Williams, who is a former Amazon GM of global vendor management. And he kind of made this off comment, off off the cuff comment that I thought was interesting. He said, uh, "Mr. Williams emphasized the sheer scale of Amazon's logistics build out over the last two years, with over 140 million square feet added, which is the equivalent to the distribution center capacity added by Walmart over the past 50 years." So you know that you know you and I have remarked several times about how how much infrastructure Amazon is building out, and it's just hard to even compare what they're doing. I thought that was an interesting comparison. Um, uh, Benedict Evans pointed out that uh, he, he kind of argued, is that a fair comparison? Because it doesn't count the retail stores. Um, 
I had a clever counter to that that I can't remember, but uh, you know, Amazon has pixels instead of you know physical space, so so it's kind of apples and oranges in a way. But you know, the my point in bringing it up with Spiffy is I'm out there fundraising all the time, and I get this feedback from VCs that say, "Oh, wait a minute, you have fans and infrastructure." Um, you know, we we don't invest in any companies that have that, and I always want to facetiously say, "Well." Well, you would have missed Amazon because you know they they clearly have have or if, if asset heavy is a thing, they are the most heavy in assets company out there that that I can think of. Um, that doesn't even count all the the you know the compute centers that they're building out for AWS, but that's a whole another story. Um, and then um, there's a famous Jeff Bezosism that he's you know someone asked him this kind of question around this asset heavy thing. He said, you you know one one way of thinking about it is if you build a big enough castle that is the moat. Uh, I guess the question that he was asked is, you know, what's Amazon's competitive moat? And his answer was, we're going to build such a big castle. We don't need, need a moat. Um, and that this is, this kind of reminded me of that quote as well. Um, and I tagged you in this. So you get the fun benefit of getting all the LinkedIn notifications for people commenting. Yeah. I was going to say you're way more popular on LinkedIn than me because that, uh, like my insight through this is you get like dozens of comments every morning. So I, I get up every morning and I'm like, you've got a hundred new notifications. And I'm like, nice. I finally became popular. And then it turns out it's all Scott Wingo lovers commenting on your thread. Wait till you, well, I have two, two things. So wait till your work anniversary. That's a, always a big day on LinkedIn. And then, and then you should put, put a post up that says, I really need an explainer leader, explainer video and automated lead generation. And then I think you'd be very popular. Yeah, I'm being slightly uh, facetious. I said the notifications are popular. The emails I get, I get plenty of unsolicited <laughs> uh, LinkedIn email. Yeah, uh, trying to sell like custodial services to Publicis. <laughs> hey, some there's a lot of garbage cans there that I imagine need emptying. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't know because the I haven't seen an office very much lately. Uh, yeah, so that uh, that I, but that thread is super interesting. There's been a lot of good conversations uh, there, and I've seen some of your your debates. Uh, a slight, I don't think this changes the spirit of this at all. Like Amazon has this huge advantage in logistics; it's their biggest advantage, and the it's it's something that despite the law of large numbers, they're still growing and investing way faster than anyone else. Uh, but um, Rob's comment was slightly off on Walmart. Like he what. What he meant to say was, in the last two years, Amazon has spent as much as Walmart did in their first 50 years, not the last 50 years. And so it is true, Walmart has dramatically accelerated their spending too, not as much as Amazon, but uh, much more so than they did in their first 50 years. Um, and uh, per per Benedict's point, like I do think these omni-channel retailers are leveraging their stores as a clever part of fulfillment. So I, to me, it's not either or, but uh, uh, I, I do think we're seeing Walmart and Target and Best Buy invest a lot in store fulfillment. And in many ways, that is working as a, a, a competitive foil to Amazon. Any other Amazon news that caught your attention this week, Scott? Well, it is. We've covered this before, but uh, Jeff is stepping. Jeff Bezos, I should say, is stepping down as CEO, and they updated some of the company um, leadership values. Um, I didn't see that as big news, and a lot of people are. You know, the headlines are coming out already. Um, is this day two uh, and that kind of thing? Um, yeah, I I feel like having met a lot of people at Amazon, I think the culture has is locked in. 
every every both deep and wide there. And I think it's going to take at least five years for us to see any kind of change in the culture there. So I, I don't think you'll see them slow down or uh, if, if people are counting on this to be the moment when they stop feeling pressure and they can stop worrying about competing with Amazon, that would be a mistake. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. I, I don't think we're going to look back in history and say, Oh man, Jeff Bezos stepping down uh, July 1st, 2021. That was the inflection point, right? Um, the, I would argue it's it's been day two at Amazon for a while. Like every everything's on a spectrum. So uh, Amazon is an amazingly agile company that overcomes a ton of institutional inertia. I think it's one of the most impressive things about Amazon, um, despite their enormous size. Uh, comma, they have a bunch of politics and institutional inertia and sacred cow syndrome at this point, just like everyone else. There, I mean, you know, it's a thirty year old company. Um, so, you know, as much as, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos has some great slogans, like some of that had already set in before Jeff left and, uh, you know, the Amazon's just too big. One person like can't like be making that day to day impact on Amazon that, that he once did. So like clearly his impact is the culture he created. Um, and again, I, I'm with you, the company values, I think what, what's interesting is that they changed it all, right? Because, you want these to kind of be pillars that that are not um, trendy and don't change every year, you know, based on fads. Um, and so it is it's interesting that they amended them uh, for the first time in a long while. Uh, and the way they amended them is that, you know, two new missions that Jeff Bezos announced in his shareholder letter. Right. So, you know, they added a, a value around um, uh, being a better employer and a value around uh, uh, being a better um, uh, ecological steward. I, I am concerned about him going off into space. That's going to be, uh, yeah, I kind of question the logic on that one. There's yeah, a non-zero chance that doesn't work out. I'll be on, yeah, as an investor, I, I like him going in that rocket a lot. I care a lot more about that, um, and it makes me a lot more queasy than him stepping down as the CEO. Like, there's there's an argument that his biggest value to Amazon will increase as he, like, stops reading customer service letters and more focuses on big picture issues as executive chairman and largest shareholder. Um, but rockets are dangerous, man. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm worried about that, but it's going to be exciting as well. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and then the only other, uh, thing that jumped out at me, that's a little interesting in this whole, um, uh, shuffling of the deck of executives and uh, things is uh, it it uh, I you're starting to see you know those Amazon executives are are their Amazon experience is really valuable at other companies so it's not surprising that people are trying to recruit them uh, I think with Jeff stepping down and a succession plan you know getting implemented uh, I think it's going to be harder to hang on to some of those other senior executives so it's going to be interesting to see um, if if the biggest impact of Jeff stepping down in the long run is uh, less retention from the other S team members. Um, and along those lines, I noticed that uh, uh, Rent the Runway, which is uh, getting ready to do um, their their uh, IPO, and they've you know had some some challenging uh, leadership optics uh, grabbed one of the 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 senior executives from the the Amazon supply chain. Um, Tony Clark to who is a VP of fulfillment at Amazon to um, kind of take over rent the runway. So 
I, you know, I think those kind of stories could become more common. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of poaching going on across the industry as some of these next generation things are scaling up and looking at going public and need to tap into the talent. Yeah. And the two stories this, this week, I think people leaving Amazon and people leaving Facebook, like I have to believe it's easier than ever before to peel off executives from those two companies. Yeah. One non-Amazon thing I wanted to pick your brain on is um, a senior Instagram person came out and said, hey, our new kind of going forward, we're no longer a kind of square photo company. We have a new focus area. In fact, there's four. Uh, Number one, creators. Number two, video. Number three, shopping. And number four, messaging. I thought that was pretty interesting because we've seen... Instagram kind of crank up the amount of activity around shoppable ads and, um, you know, incorporating, um, you know, expanding their partnership with Shopify. And we've seen shop pay being added all over the place. Uh, and, uh, I thought, you know, um, that's pretty interesting. What, what did you make of that? Yeah. Uh, well, so not surprising. Um, a, those were, those are basically, um, Mark Zuckerberg's like priorities from, from, 2019 f8 so it's not totally surprising that they're they've kind of propagated to instagram at this point um it is interesting to me that that you know at least three and maybe four of them are all like cumulatively what i would call commerce right like you talk you know what what big trends am i talking a lot with with uh clients about it's it's creators as micro influencers it's video driven commerce it's social commerce um and the the sleeper is you know customer service phone lines are going away and they used to sell an awful lot of product on those phone lines and all that is pivoting to um the these various chat services and you know you talk to consumers no one wants to use their phone for voice calls anymore so um so you know commerce happening via customer service on these messaging services also is a big thing um and so for all of those reasons, uh, I would say I have a lot more clients that are a lot more interested in piloting things on these social networks. And Instagram um, arguably may have the most robust commerce tool set right at the moment. So it uh, makes total sense for them to lean in, lean in. I would say the one bummer if you're at Instagram today is that uh, for some good and some irrational reasons, the social network that has the most buzz amongst my clients is TikTok. So still smaller, I would argue still has less buying intent than Instagram, but uh, it's growing much faster and it it it, uh, it gets brought up in a lot more board meetings. So I have a lot more panicked uh, chief digital officers calling, asking me for advice about commerce pilots on TikTok than I do uh, commerce pilots on Instagram at this point. Interesting. And then do you uh, respond with some of your clever TikTok videos? I do. I do. I send them all to my, my Instagram channel uh, where I talk about TikTok on Instagram. <laughs> and you do the renegade. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, I, I was for a while, but um, now the problem is I've like torn three ACLs on my skateboard trying to drink that stupid ocean spray. So I, uh, I probably need to stop that. Uh, yeah. I tend to be about three or four uh, social networks behind. So I've kind of just leaned into YouTube. Now that it's not cool anymore. Just wrapping up the Friendster uh, account. Oh, no, no. I'm hanging on to that bad boy. <laughs> it's coming back. I promise. Exactly. You guys will all be sorry you abandoned me on MySpace. 
Another industry news item is Shopify held their kind of virtual Unite 2021 conference. Um, they announced a bunch of platform enhancements. I didn't see anything earth shattering. Where they get the most buzz is they basically said, hey, if you have an app on our app store, um, we're going to give you the first million dollars free. And that was kind of part of their roguish, rebelish, um, you know, app stores have obviously been in the news a lot with uh, both Apple uh, and Google coming out under um, Apple versus Epic. And then Google just got an antitrust filing on this topic. So, um, you know, they they kind of very cleverly took a, a kind of a counter PR strategy here, which got a lot of buzz, which I thought was pretty clever, uh, it, you know. Um, they never said how much that's going to cost them in revenue and the stock didn't really kind of move around. And, and I thought someone should have asked that question. I didn't see anyone ask that question. So it must be somewhat immaterial or, or people don't care. I don't, I don't know, but I, I thought that was clever PR, but I really didn't get anything much more meaty out of, out of the announcements there. How yeah. About you? Uh, well, so there are a few things. A, I would, I would say that one got a lot of buzz, but I would say it, that was actually an easy thing for Shopify to offer. And it's, it's largely misunderstood. Um, the App Store for Google or or even way more so the App Store for Apple is the primary moneymaker. It's their primary economic model. When we talk about App Store in the context of Shopify, it's a B2B app store, right? So what this is, is your, you want to sell your goods uh, on a Shopify store and you need some amenity that isn't built into the native Shopify platform. Uh, you need ratings and reviews. So you go into the app store and you buy ratings and reviews from one of the the 50 vendors that offer a, a ratings and reviews solution. And Shopify used to take a little piece of that initial revenue um, for uh, for that app store. Right. And so now they're saying, hey, we're not going to take a piece of your first million dollars in revenue. Um, the so. So that's a thing, and it makes it a little a little cheaper for small companies to be on that that app store. Uh, the The reality is, the big companies it's super annoying because they already had access to those customers without the app store. Um, the app store is not the only path to get your your product instrumented on Shopify. So you kind of it's it's closer to like Google, where you can kind of sideload apps and not go through the app store. Um, but the bigger thing is. As a general rule, Shopify would tell you not to use the App Store. <laughs> and most of the other um, initiatives from Shopify were about minimizing the App Store because it turns out when you install 50 unvended plugins from small, unknown third parties, it destroys your stability and performance of your web store. <laughs> right? And so, uh, like, you know, Shopify, uh, some of the other things they announced was like a better vetting process of that app store. But like in general, it, it's not like sellers are are using dozens and dozens of apps and that there's that's a big revenue stream for Shopify. Um, so it the fact that they have a robust app ecosystem is a competitive advantage for Shopify against other platforms. Um, so maybe there's more apps available on the Shopify app store than there are on the big commerce app store. And that might make you pick Shopify and by not charging uh, rev share on your first million dollars in sales on their app store, that encourages more people to stay on the app store, which helps them keep that that little moat they have against other platforms. So um, maybe more information than anyone wanted on that point. But uh, 
To me, the more interesting thing is I, Shopify is another one of these amazing companies that I still like to criticize, right? They're doing a bunch of things right, um, but I still like to highlight that they've got a ton of technical debt, and a particular pet peeve of mine has been the the inflexibility of their platform that you kind of like every seller gets kind of homogenized to the same experience because it's, it's kind of hard to get out of the Shopify box. Um, and that that box is not very, uh, a very good performer. And from a web page load speed thing, which is super important to e-commerce success, um, the Shopify store starts out as mediocre. And then if you make some bad decisions, mediocre becomes horrific. Uh, and so I would say that, um, they probably didn't do enough. They didn't announce enough in this to make me super excited that they're fixing all those problems. But I would say they they owned all of those problems at in their Unite 2021 conference and announced some significant progress in each of those. So I think for sure um, they're they're doing more to uh, allow individual shop owners to change the look and feel and optimize their customer experience in more ways that are codeless, um, which is, you know, what most Shopify sites want. Um, so I think they made a lot of progress in their, in their flexibility on their user experience. They're evolving their product management system, uh, in some ways to make it more competitive with standalone PIMs and to make it a more useful sort of hub for marketplaces. So I imagine, uh, there, there's some interested followers at Channel Advisor and 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 your your competitors in that space that are looking at some of the things they announced. It uh, and then they they did make some improvements in their page performance. They made a lot of improvements in letting people know what your page performance is. They they really improved their tools there, um, but they still aren't embracing things that I would say are probably things you want to be embracing in 2021, like progressive web apps for mobile and things like that. So so I would say. Uh, they're addressing their technical debt, but they did not, you know, come out and say it's it, we've wiped it all away. Hmm. Very cool. One of the last things I want to talk about is I saw this and thought of you. Um, you and I have presented several times about different trends, and one of your favorites is to talk about brands going direct. One of my also favorite trends, and you uh, you frequently reference Nike as a company that's really focused on this, and they had some some interesting news there. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, had uh, the I want to say end of, or mid June, end of June. Uh, they did their their quarterly earnings. It's slightly confusing because they're not on a calendar fiscal year. So so their Q four ended May thirty first. So their quarterly earnings were Q four, whereas a lot of companies on calendar years in the same season are doing their kind of what they would call their Q one earnings, uh, or I'm sorry, Q two earnings. Um, so. A, they had a really good uh, earnings report, um, which is kind of impressive because in general, you would have said, man, uh, shoes and apparel didn't do very well during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, again, comping uh, kind of um, uh, what, what would that be? April, May or uh, March, April, May of this year versus last year, like the basis was really sucky last year. So you would expect Q4 to be up, but their fiscal year was way up, right? So their so their their 2020 uh, fiscal year was up 19 percent from the previous year, which is pretty impressive in the pandemic. Um, and what what's even more interesting is you look at like North America and Nike sales um, last quarter were up 29 percent versus two years ago. Um, so 
if you're wondering if they've fully recovered from the pandemic and people not wearing shoes, um, yes, like they, they did really well. And then digital, um, you know, like a lot of other companies, again, in the pandemic, more of your sales shifted to digital. So uh, you expect kind of digital to be up last year, which should make the comps this year tough. But uh, they were still up 54% and they're up 177% from two years ago. So, um, so like stupendous digital growth. Um, and, you know, you, as you alluded to, the thing we talk a lot about Nike is in the 1990s, Nike was a 100% wholesale company and they, they sold shoes to Foot Locker and Foot Locker sold them to consumers. Um, and, you know, over time, they, they were really one of the first brands to launch their own retail store, Nike Town. And it was super controversial at the time. People have obviously gotten used to those initiatives. And if you zoom back to like 2010, 15% of Nike's sales were direct to consumer. Well, in 2017, Nike said, hey, we're going to get really serious about this direct to consumer. We think that's the future. We're going to fire all of our wholesalers and mainly become a direct to consumer company. And in fact, the numbers were startling. They said they had uh, 40,000 companies that sold Nike shoes, and they were looking to diminish that to about 80 companies. And every year we've seen them fire wholesalers. This year we saw them uh, say to DSW that that you're not going to be selling Nike shoes anymore. Um, So Nike's really practicing what they preach. And in 2020, 35% of their sales were direct to consumer. So um, they uh, are you know, making a lot of progress there, you know, and that, that strategy is basically working for them. So it's, it's been super interesting to watch. And I, I talk with a lot of brands in other categories about the Nike example, and it's like, they have their own platform and ecosystem with Nike plus, um, that they're, they're a leader in social commerce. Um, they're doing a bunch of things uh, really well. So it's, it's interesting that they, uh, not shocking that they had a great quarterly earnings. And I think their stock had a nice uh, bump as well. Speaking of stock, uh, there's an IPO that I am eager to get my hands on, uh, but I won't be able to right away. And I thought maybe you could explain that to our listener, Scott. Uh, Warby Parker um, has announced that they have confidentially filed for an IPO. And uh, you've already taught me what that means, but maybe you could explain it to our listeners. Yeah. So there's... um... Back in the Obama administration, there was this Jobs Act thing that allowed you to file confidentially to do an IPO. And the benefit of that is it, um, when you, in the old school way, you would file for an IPO and then all of your conversations with the SEC were public. And inside of there, there's a little bit of dirty laundry kind of thing that goes on there. Also, it almost fully commits you to the IPO path at that point. So it doesn't give the company the ability to kind of test and kind of say, all right, we want to kind of show the SEC what's going on here. And maybe we decide based on their feedback, we don't want to do this process. Or maybe we do some exploratory conversations with potential shareholders and valuations off and we don't like it. We want to pull the IPO. It, it, it doesn't give you that opportunity. So that's what the confidential filing thing gives you. Now, um, when companies, so then why would a company announce it? So the reason companies now announce that they're doing it is um, to, if they, you know, they don't have to do it the day they file. So what they probably did is filed, they got good feedback in round one from the SEC, and then they committed to the path. And then it's smart at that point to kind of prime the pump and tell people you're coming down the path a little bit. 
it still hides your SEC things. You still have that small window where they, they filed before they announced they were doing this to test the waters, get feedback from the SEC. Maybe they were a lot of times you're also having what's called a dual path um, kind of a, a program where you're selling the company. You're looking at possibly selling the company and an IPO as, as kind of an alternative. Um, so that's, that's why it would then be time to, to announce it is you're fully committed to the IPO path. And it's kind of like when you list a house now, um, a lot of people do a coming soon. So it puts a little bit of a coming soon out there to build excitement for the IPO, um, but then also does keep the communications with the SEC confidential. And it does allow you to run a little bit of a decision-making process before you you announce the confidential filing. Got you. And so, but it it is true that at some point that S1 becomes public, right? Yeah. Yeah, what'll happen is... Um, the SEC will say, um, okay, this uh, SEC is out of draft mode and it's going to, you know, um, once you update it with these things, um, you're good to go. And then they'll they'll update it and then it will be, a, you know, kind of a hot live S1. And then that will start the whole thing where they, that starts the calendar of, you know, after X days, you start your roadshow and then you need to price and, and then do the, the IPA. Yeah. Um, and so... I, I and many others are super eager to get our hands on that. As as a lot of listeners will know, Warby Parker was one of the the first kind of poster child for these like modern digital direct to consumer brands. And so for the longest time, you know, every brand in America was like the sky is falling. All these D two C companies are are showing up and they're doing much better than us and they're getting all the buzz. And the two biggest examples were Dollar Shave Club and Warby Parker. And um, We've never gotten a chance to see the real uh, economics behind Dollar Shave Club because they were part of a private acquisition at Unilever, and and Unilever doesn't have to disclose a lot of their 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 individual financials because it's not material to Unilever. Um, but uh, we're all eager to see how big Warby Parker really is. Um, and you know, I I have a hypothesis that that while they seem like a good company and uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure that they're going to have meaningful sales. That they that these D to C companies are slightly overhyped, and so I think people might be surprised at like what the annual sales run rate is at Warby Parker when when this stuff gets disclosed. So I'm I'm uh, excited for that. And then you know, past guest of the show Dan McCarthy, like he's having a field day with these S ones because increasingly they're putting um, customer retention data and cohort data in these things. And that lets him do like you know the real big brain math um, to to uh, figure out the the long term value of of these companies. And in Warby Parker's case, they're they're one of the oldest digital D 2 Cs out there, so they're they're going to have a lot of robust cohorts. So if they choose to share some data, that'll be super interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know how often people change their glasses. This so that'll be the factor. Uh, well, part of the mo- uh, so like a lot is annual. Um, or at least prescriptions and things like that. And part of the Warby Parker model is that uh, at least they would say that like we're so inexpensive that we become more of a fashion accessory and people that would have only owned one pair of glasses will own four pair of glasses and people that would have only bought glasses every three years are buying glasses every year and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that is true. Cool. And then um, kind of a tease for a future trip report, you are spreading your wings and flying to New York to do some retail visits for us. Uh, what's what, what are you going to check out when you're there? 
Yeah, old-time listeners will know, you know, I was on the road every week and we talked about visiting stores every time I got a chance to visit them. I haven't gotten to do that in a while. Uh, I have done a couple business trips, but I do have one uh, for the end of this month in uh, New York and New Jersey, and I have uh, reserved a day because there's two significant new store openings that have happened this month. Uh, There is a uh, Wizarding World of Harry Potter store uh, that opened uh, uh, in the Flatiron District in in uh, New York. Uh, um, we, I, I've read a lot about that. I got to visit it uh, while it was under construction, but this will be my first time seeing it open. Um, and uh, some people will know that uh, I often use Ollie Anders' wand shop uh, at at uh, Universal Studios as my example of the best retail experience out there. So, so uh, Harry Potter has some creds. The Harry Potter team has some creds in retail. It'll be interesting to see what they do in this this flagship retail space. And then um, the the other company that opened a, a, a retail store, arguably for the first time, is Google. So they've opened a permanent store in New York City, and uh, they they had a big news cycle where they're like, we're opening our first store. It's a huge deal. And I, I would put an asterisk on that because they have done a lot of significant pop-up retail where they, like, opened a store for six months. Um, and I'm not sure that the 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 permanent store is necessarily going to be wildly different than those pop-ups, but I'm I'm eager to see how their, their retail chops have evolved, and it'll be fun to visit that store. Yeah, I think um, a double dog dare you to walk in the Google store with a megaphone and just say two words, okay, Google, and then run out. And, see what <laughs> and then um, at the Harry Potter store, I'm excited to hear um, in a future show, you don't have to reveal now if you're not comfortable. This is a very personal question, but um, what do you put at the core of your wand? Are you a Phoenix feather guy or a unicorn hair or dragon spit or um, yeah. So yeah. it's going to be exciting to, to get a report on that as well. Yeah. Well, Scott, as you well know, you don't get to pick that because you do not choose the wand. The wand chooses you. Ah, man, going deep on the HP notch. Yeah, uh, but adding a layer of complexity, this New York store has some scarcity. So there are there is a wand, for example, that's only available at this store that's not available through any of the other properties. So do you you pick the wand that's the best fit for your innate magic, or do you you know pick the the one of a kind wand that you can only get by visiting this store? It's it's built so, for the scarcity. It's a lot of a lot of Hold dilemmas on. as a Go collector. Scarcity and salt on eBay. Yeah, yeah, Scott. <laughs> Scott, I know exactly what you would do. Um, I am selling some stuff on eBay for the first time. So, side note for a future show: uh, it turns out it's a as a normal consumer, it's a huge pain in the ass to sell stuff on eBay now, which is pretty disappointing. Yeah, wait till you ship it, and um, the people yeah, some kind of don't get paid. Yeah. Oh, has, has, uh, yeah. I'm terrified. I feel like I, I've gotten like all this these communications from scammers. It's like like I would never advise. Uh, a not sophisticated seller to try to do this. Like this, this used to be their primary model. Yeah, it's hard. It It is a mess. Uh, anyway, Scott, we did uh, allocate a shorter period of time for this show. And I feel like I want to honor that commitment. I know it's summer. Everyone's taking vacation. So uh, we, we don't want to condemn uh, our listeners to our usual hour. So I think this is a good place to cut it. Uh, if you appreciate shorter shows, you can thank us by leaving a review and saying, hey, we always love the show, but we love the shorter one even more. Thanks, everybody. And until next time. Happy commercing. 
You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 